Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This episode of Red Inca is about Ross Taylor. Now that his career is over, I thought it was a great time to look back. So I brought on one of the best New Zealand cricket journalists to talk about him. Yeah, I'm Dylan Cleaver. I'm a sports journalist from New Zealand, and I write a Substack newsletter called The Bounce. We talk about his origin story, middle-class cricket, Pacific Island players, slogging, Martin Crowe, his journey, Kane Williamson, Brendan McCullen, his record in tests, his even better record in ODIs, and the fragility that he had when he started in innings. Now, I've got you on to talk about Ross Taylor, who is sadly retiring from Test cricket just at the time he's yeah. become a, an ace wicket taker. What a performance that was. I want to talk about his career a little bit, but I think maybe if we go back to the start, he comes from more of a rugby area of New Zealand. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and look, I've said in the past, I think one of the most remarkable things about Ross Taylor's career is that it happened at all. A lot of things had to fall into place for Ross to get where he is. And that's actually a, a bit of a sad reflection on New Zealand cricket in a lot of ways. But he was a half Samoan kid growing up in a working class family in Masterton, which is in Heartland, Wairapa, which for those of you who don't know, is a sort of bottom half of the lower island, very rural community, very salt of the earth type people, definitely known for its rugby rather than cricket. The two most famous sportsmen produced there were Bob Charles, who is a golf major winner, New Zealand's first gold major winner, and uh, Sir Brian Lahore, who was a all-black captain. It's not known for producing cricketers of any note whatsoever. So it's kind of remarkable that in two towns about, in imperial terms, about 10 miles apart from each other, Masterton and Carsterton, came Jesse Ryder and Ross Taylor from two mixed-race families, two very working-class families. And they were, their talent was recognised early, which is good. It was then kind of supercharged by sending them out of the wire wrapper. Ross Taylor went to Palmerston North Boys High School, which was known at that time as a little bit of a hot house for cricketing talent. He was supported there. Um, cricketing networks were put around him, if you like, and mm. that's how he got to... Um, meet Martin Crowe, who then became his mentor. And after that, his talent took him to the top. But a lot of things kind of had to fall into place. So this idea that New Zealand's a cricket egalitarian paradise is not really true, actually. But, I mean, we're all glad it happened. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned working class a few times. England gets a lot of bad rap for this, and so do some of the other Asian countries at the time. But 
Mm. People don't really talk about the fact that New Zealand is probably one of the most middle-class cricket nations around, isn't it? And on top of that, you've then got the fact that so many of the people involved in cricket are related to other people who are involved in cricket. Yeah, the cricket in New Zealand is incredibly small. I saw a stat the other day that uh, New Zealand cricket decided to get very honest about their numbers in their last annual report. 61,000 people play what you'd term organised cricket in New Zealand. That is less than the western suburbs of Sydney, I believe. So yeah, when you kind of understand that, you understand how kind of niche the sport is. Like it's incredibly popular, it's incredibly well followed. The media still covers cricket more than perhaps they should given those numbers Mm. yet it is a small sport it's very white very middle class and unfortunately it's becoming even more about kind of what school you went to i mean i hate saying that because it it rankles me but (laughs) i think if you'd now did a survey of new zealand's first class cricketers you would find that very few would come from state co-ed schools and the other part is obviously the Samoan part. There are so few islanders. I think I got confused with Adam Perore. Adam Perore was Maori. Is that, am I yes, remembering that right? Yeah, he was part Maori. Yes. And Daryl Tuffy was? Jesse Ryder, Daryl Tuffy, a part Maori. Shane Bond was probably the, I guess, the touchstone for Maori cricketers at one point. But how many Samoan cricketers then are there other than Ross? Ross Taylor is the second. <laughs> yeah, so there was a guy called Murphy Sewer who was oh, a... Oh, Murphy Sewer, yeah. Yes, yes, left-arm seam bowler. Murphy Sewer actually was fairly vocal about how he found that environment quite racist when he was coming through. Ross has never been, and I don't think Ross faced the same kind of perception obstacles that perhaps Murphy Sewer did when he was coming through. But nevertheless, New Zealand has singularly failed to engage the Pacifica community in cricket, despite there being a really strong tradition of Samoans and Tongans playing their version of cricket. But it's definitely a work in progress, and progress is glacial. Yeah. The thing is that when he came through, he had a reputation of being a very attacking batter. And, you know, I sort of, in my article, sort of not linked it directly, but to the Martin Crow article, where I think yeah. he wrote for wisdom.com back in the day that, I think he said Maoris, but I think he talked about all Pacific people not having the temperament to play test cricket. That was 2003. Yeah. He was running everything. He's Martin Crowe. So former mm. captain, best, probably best batter of all time in New Zealand cricket at that stage. And also, you know, running Sky, the sports channel as well. He's a big person to come out and say something that is quite racist. And I know it hurts Martin Crowe later in his life for that to be yeah. pointed out to him. But that is what he wrote. And, and he was very public on it. Yeah, and also it's actually still something you hear to this day, not perhaps couched in those terms, but there is a perception that Pacifica kids are not suited to cricket because there's no physicality like there is in rugby, as if the only sports they're suited to are the ones with physical elements. (laughs) And I guess by extension of that, the perception is that they're not wired for games that last a long time, and yeah, it's wrong. (laughs) I mean, there's no scientific basis for those theories at all, but you still hear it to this day. I, for example, rowing is very strong in New Zealand, and there's very few Pacifica rowers, and you hear the same argument, well, they don't like rowing because they like the collision sports and that. Well, no, they don't like rowing is because rowing is not done in the schools, which they tend to go to, which are from the lower socioeconomic parts of New Zealand and the cities in particular. In my mind, it's an access issue. 
rather mm. than a temperament issue or some kind of genetic predisposition for not liking cricket. Yeah, as if they were somehow born with a gene that didn't <laughs> like cricket. I mean, having Ross Taylor then front and present, so obviously captain New Zealand for a little while, we'll get onto that later, but he was the star batter for a long period, then Kane Williamson sort of took over, but he was a star batter and he's been involved for, what, 15 years. Like, it's a phenomenally yeah. long career. There must be a effect that that has had throughout wider cricket, even if it hasn't had, it's not like he's fixed anything, but just being there, yeah. there must be an effect of that. Yeah, you would like to think so, but again, and I don't want to downplay the significance of Ross being Samoan, but he wasn't actually very vocal about it for a long time. And perhaps it's because, and I guess I'm delving into the subconscious here, perhaps it's because Ross always wanted to belong and the way to belong in cricket wasn't to highlight how you were different. It was mm. to try and be the same as everyone else. So, And a lot of it's not his fault. Go back to his name, for God's sake. His name is Luteru. Mm. He's called Ross because he turned up to primary school with his grandmother and his mother, and the principal couldn't say Luteru, for goodness sake. So they just gave up in the end and said, just call him Ross, which is like one of his middle names. So Ross has never been particularly, I guess, outspoken about taking the game wider to Pacifica communities. I know he'd like to, mm. and I know there's a real connection there with the Samoan background that he'd like to, I guess, explore more thoroughly. So, I mean, I don't know, perhaps some of his greatest work is yet to come in yeah. terms of New Zealand cricket, but I don't think it's had a massive effect now. Off the top of my head, I can think of one Samoan, aside from Ross playing first-class cricket at the moment in New Zealand, and that is a guy, Sean Solia in Auckland, who's a very handy all-rounder, but I'm not sure that he's close to breaking into any of the New Zealand teams. Yep. And it should be pointed out as well, if my memory serves me correct, is Steve Adams, the NBA player, is he Pacific Islands background as well? Pat Murray. Yeah, because I remember yes. his story. He doesn't play for the New Zealand national team because he felt like so much of an outsider. And again, I'm not sure yes. that was purely a race thing, but he just felt like an outsider. So yeah. you've got two incredible athletes there who kind of feel in some ways like they either have to change their name or hide who they are or are you know on the outside. So it's clearly an issue within the – well, from the outside, it looks like to me, to the non-rugby sports, rugby seems to be yeah. uh, slightly different. But – so if we move on from that a little bit, the Martin Crow stuff's really interesting because, as we said, Martin Crow has written this article and then a couple of years later, Ross Taylor turns up on the scene. Clearly yes. a very attacking player. I think you and I have probably watched enough of him to say there is a sort of fragility to Ross Taylor's batting, which I really enjoy as a spectator, but I mm. think if I was a New Zealand fan, it would have felt like watching Dean Jones where you, the whole time you decide he's going to go out, he's going to go out, and then suddenly <laughs> he hits 12 boundaries and things change. He did have to develop into being a first-class batter and then a test match batter. He really started as someone who just had a lot of shots. How much did Martin Crowe sort of play a role in that? Is that a temperament thing, or was it just yeah. something that got drilled into him through New Zealand cricket? I think it was more a technical thing with Martin, actually. I know by the end they'd moved beyond that, and Martin was a sounding board for Ross. And Ross, this is probably understated a little bit, I think Ross played a just as important role in Martin's later life. In that I think you're right. He had in some ways been rejected by the New Zealand cricket establishment by then, and, and Ross was his connection to the modern game, and I think he loved Ross for that. And, yeah, that's by no way is this a one-way relationship at all, I think, in terms of their importance to each other and in terms of the importance to New Zealand cricket. But, yeah, I think it was a technical thing at first because you're right about Ross, and sometimes Ross is 
first 20, 30 balls were horrifying. Uh, they were watching through the slits in your fingers type things. And it's because, without wanting to get too nerdy and technical, I think, he has always had incredibly fast hands. And his fast hands would get ahead of his feet. So, you know, when some people aren't scoring runs, they look like they're one piercing of the gap and they're away again. When Ross isn't scoring runs, he looks dreadful. It's all wafts and flicks and swats, and you think, oh, no, this guy's gone. He's never going to score a run again in his life. But then he gets through that 20, 30 balls. He slides a couple of balls behind point. Now he had this incredible ability to cut the ball from an inch outside off stump, either side of point, and he'd be away. So I think what Martin Crow did initially was tell him that he had all the shots in the world. He needed to find a way of getting through those first 30 balls. And Ross talked about, that a little bit with me at one point about how the key to his innings is getting through that first 30 balls. It did not look pretty all the time, and he, he would sometimes come with a new season with a slightly new setup. He had sometimes had that front foot pointing directly down the wicker, and he'd make a quite a big show of his setup. You know, sometimes it looked very manufactured and mechanical, but it was simply his way of, I think, switching on, saying, if I survive those first few overs, I have got every shot. I'm very hard to stop scoring. So I think Martin Crow played a massive part in that because the first time he saw him bat was a first-class game on the Eden Park out of Oval where the ball was decking around. A guy, Andre Adams, was just making Ross look silly. And Ross's only way, his only bailout was to try and swipe. And Martin Crow walked away from that. And I think it's famously now said to Ross's manager, Leah McGoldrick, I don't think I can work with him. He's nothing but a filthy slogger. It's, it's an incredible story. Also, like I remember I was uh, broadcasting the um, New Zealand-India test when he came out in the last test and the pitch was ragging and Steve Harmison was on with me. And he played some of the worst shots you'll ever see. I think he almost went out about five times in a row. It was ridiculous. And yeah. me and Steve Harmison were commentating, and, we would, and, and Harmy would say, oh, look, I don't want to say this, but it looks like Ross Taylor's finished. And I said, but it kind of has looked like that for most of the last decade and yeah. a half. Usually he just gets past this, and they start slog sweeping those things for six. So he was always a bit like that. So it's interesting that that was such a big part of it. I want to talk about sort of the period from like 2007 to 2013. At that point, he really did look like the best batter that New Zealand had had since Martin Crowe and looked like yeah. he was going to be an absolute first-tier legend up there with Sutcliffe and Glenn Turner and those sorts of batters. How exciting was it to have a batting talent like that? Because you'd had guys like you know, Astill and Fleming and McMillan. They were all really good, but they weren't just off the level of Ross Taylor. Yeah. Do you know what the really interesting thing about that, and I'm talking from my own perspective here, is it goes back to what we were just saying before. And I spent a lot of those first few years saying, this is cool. You know, we've got this guy who can play shots 360, but I kept waiting for it to fall over. I kept waiting <laughs> for the bubble to burst. Things someone's going to figure out that, you know, if you give him no width outside of stump, if you attack that front pad early, and I just expected it to fall away. But instead, he got through those first few years and – he did it with scoring, you know, big hundreds. Like he scored a big hundred at Old Trafford, which was fantastic. And it came hard on the heels of him embarrassing himself at Lords and playing two of the most awful innings I've had the misfortune to witness. And he scored a 
big hundred, I think it was at Hamilton against Australia in a series where, like most Australian-New Zealand series, Australia's bowlers just had the New Zealand top order on, on toast. But he scored this wonderful 138. And, and my memory might be playing tricks on me, but I have it in my head that he scored a ridiculous percentage of New Zealand's runs in that innings, even sort of batting at four or five or wherever he batted back then. But yeah, and then he went into this period after about three years where you just realised, hey, this guy's good. That's when we started kind of talking about it as either New Martin Crow. You know, I guess this relationship with Crow was known by then. And it was really exciting. But I can't say that immediately I thought, you know, we've got a legend on our hands here. It, it took me a little bit longer than it should have to realise. And I just want to compare him then to Williamson because I felt very early on that that is what New Zealand felt with Williamson. That yeah. Partly maybe because Taylor had already been so good and Williamson looked even better from a very, very early on in his career. But it felt to me like everyone was like, no, Williamson's going to be unlike anything we've ever had before. Yeah. Is that fair that he eclipsed him that quickly? Am, am I remembering that right? Yeah, you are. And Williamson probably came with a longer advanced type. Williamson had done prodigious schoolboy feats that got good press, you know, at the time. He went to one uh, age group tournament for... I'm not sure if it was, it must have been a Northern Districts age group side. Him and Doug Bracewell, Trent Bolt were in that same team, I think. And I don't think Kane went out the entire tournament until the last day of the tournament where he basically got himself out once he got 100 just to give other guys a bat. So there had been a lot more noise around Kane when he came into the team. And of course, he scored 100 in his first test, which kind of solidified that, you know, he's our next great batsman he did struggle for a long time after that Kane but unlike Ross Kane still looked pretty when he mm. struggled so there was kind of this sense that yeah okay it's not going all to plan with Kane but you can see that there's something there and then he also Kane had the habit of doing kind of quite heroic things early in his career too he scored a hundred unbeaten hundred to save a test against South Africa Again, New Zealand were just hopelessly outclassed in that series by um, Stain and Morkel, Philander, just all at sea. But Kane scored 102. He did it after he'd been just pelted by Stain. And it kind of, it was the innings in a cape that New Zealand had been waiting for. Whereas perhaps Ross didn't have that moment early. Although he scored runs, you know, almost straight away and scored them very well. I'm not sure a lot of New Zealanders stayed up through the middle of the night to watch that 150 that he got at Old Trafford, which was phenomenal, whereas Kane was doing it in plain sight in front of everyone. And it was a little unfair on Ross, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, in any other era, Ross Taylor is just the best batter that you've had. It just happens to yeah. be he's dovetailed with someone even better. Yeah. And the other thing that I find quite interesting with him is the whole captaincy thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on my memory of this. My memory is that McCullum and Taylor both wanted the captaincy, Taylor went in with like a PowerPoint presentation of some kind, very professional, might have even worn a suit, which I remember a cricketer <laughs> telling me that and like them remarking on it like it was the most amazing thing. He probably just had a shirt on. But And McCullum went in far more like you would expect McCullum to go in, a little bit more as himself. He was like, I'm going to yeah. do this, I'm going to do this. And they just thought that Taylor seemed a lot more professional and perhaps ready for the job than McCullum was. And that's obviously not how it went in the early part of the captaincy. Yeah, it was actually a little bit messier than that, and it goes back a little bit further. McCullum was Daniel Vittori's vice-captain. Yeah. 
Now, I'm not sure exactly what year it was. I get my years a little bit muddled through that period. But McCallum was sacked from the vice captaincy. And the reason he was given was that, you know, the cliche, we want you to concentrate on your cricket, you're an important part of the team. The unspoken reason was that he was too much one of the lads still. He was still um, propping up the bar, probably exaggerated, but there was still that feeling that he was out on the town with the boys and wasn't setting an example. But the other thing they told McCullum apparently was, we just don't think we need a vice captain. Dan's got this covered. And so to McCullum's horror, a few weeks later, Ross was appointed vice captain, which kind of nullified the whole we don't need a vice captain thing. I think it probably hurt Brendan more than he let on. And so I think that there was an assumption that when Dan stepped aside that Ross was just going to step into that role. But New Zealand cricket, and this is something that is just a stain on them forever, decided they'd have this presidential-style runoff for the captaincy. So they pitted two of New Zealand's best players effectively in an adversarial position against each other. And again, you hear different things from different people, but my understanding that Brendan was very clever and that he got a lot of the senior players around him and he said, this is my vision for how we want to play the game and the, these are the guys I want to lean on. This is the core of my team. This is how I think we should play to maximise the skills that we have in the team. And the players were genuinely excited by that. Whereas, as you say, I think you're right, Ross was very professional in the way he went about it. I think he had some fairly high-level mentors that he, I guess, turned to to say, how do I present to New Zealand cricket to to give me the best opportunity of getting this job? So you're you're right, he probably went in and it was a sharp presentation, whereas Brendan would have been probably more folksy, more, you know, come on, let's get behind me and, you know, storm the castle. And Ross got the job. And Ross was not an unpopular teammate by any stretch of the imagination, but just because of that process and the way they did it, he wasn't the guy that the players at the team at that time wanted Mm. to be captain. And there was also the sense that there was actually a natural order of things, that it should have gone Dan, Brendan, Ross, Kane, and it didn't. You know, In their wisdom, they chose Ross. I think when you looked at that panel that was going to decide who the captain, it was probably always going to be Ross. And there's also a sense of that, too, amongst the players, that Brendan never stood a chance. And it started off okay. There was that miraculous win at Hobart. And then it did go downhill from there. And I do think, it depends what side you take, there's a sense that maybe Ross lost control of the team. But then if you're a, a supporter of Ross, and unfortunately it did get very divided like that at the time, you're either a Brendan man or a Ross man. It was kind of quite pathetic, really. But if you're a Ross man, you would argue that he was white-handed from day one. And there's probably the truth lies somewhere in between. It was not a good time. It was an incredible time to be a cricket reporter because you just had people coming to you all the time saying, oh, do you know this is happening? Do you know this is happening? The players won't play for Ross or, you know, Ross has lost control of the team. And so there was an inevitability to the way it ended, unfortunately but it didn't make it any less troublesome, really. And that hung over New Zealand cricket for a long time. It seems like he either just focused on his batting at a certain point or just got over it. So obviously, as you said, it did hang over New Zealand cricket for a little while. There was, you know, the famous hotel meeting with Brendan McCullum and bringing the IPL players back in and all that sort of stuff. But it seems that most of the anger, like Martin Crowe saying he was going to burn his Mm. blazer and 
it seemed like a lot of the anger was sort of more from outside and Ross Taylor just got on with it. Is that just because he's that sort of person? Because really in his career, he's kind of been like that. Yeah, although he didn't get on with it straight away. Like he was incredibly hurt. And I think a lot of those people around him were in some way fueling that hurt. Martin Crowe's an incredibly interesting, but also very emotional guy. I'm trying to remember this rightly. I'm pretty sure I'm the reporter who was on the phone to him when he said, I've burnt my blazer. I've gone out. <laughs> I know my name's on the story anyway and the, on the front page of the Herald. Well, he tweeted it as well because I remember he direct yes. messaged me on Twitter to say, look what I've said. Yes. It was in those days where you had to go back through and scroll and I was like, oh, God, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ross decided he was going to miss the next tour. He wasn't in the right frame of mind to play and that tour was the tour to South Africa which ended, uh, well, didn't end in, started in the infamous winning the toss and batting in 45 all out at Cape Town. So it was a good tour to miss for us. But unfortunately, that had the effect of some of the players were angry that Ross set out that tour. They felt that, you know, I remember one of them saying to me, something along the lines of, for God's sake, it's a captaincy change. It's not a military coup or anything like that. And so he set that out. He missed all the carnage over there. He came back into the team, and it was a little bit of a fragile situation. I think the next series was a series against England at home, which was nil all the test series, but it was really dramatic. New Zealand had a chance to win on the last afternoon at Eden Park. Kane Williamson was kind of going through the tail with his bent elbow offspin, and Ross Taylor was taking catches at first slip in a... It was just one of those accidental things where he would take the catch and run off to his left and all the team would run to the bowler. But it had that symbolic look of Ross mm. was still a man apart. Well, I don't think it was probably the case at all. I, I know he was still finding his footing and trying to find trust with the coach, Mike Hesson at all. But a lot was made of that, how, you know, Ross was running in one direction and, and the rest of the team was running in the other. But you're absolutely correct in that. When he did come back into the team, I think he got a little bit more steely with his batting. Perhaps you'd even say a little bit more selfish with his batting. And Brendan and Mike get a lot of credit for changing that culture and that direction of, of New Zealand cricket. What you cannot ignore was one of the reasons they were successful was Ross Taylor's sheer weight of runs. Mm. They hadn't won a test for a long time as a captain-coach duo when Ross just took over a series against West Indies. And I think the lowest score he was dismissed for in that series was 129. And that was the series where, uh, I know it sounds easy these days, being the West Indies at home is no great feat, but New Zealand was still not very good back then. Yeah, And they played a really good brand of cricket in that series, all on the back of Ross Taylor's prodigious run making. And really, he didn't stop scoring runs for New Zealand for a long time after that. Undoubtedly one of New Zealand's greatest ever test batters. Where would you have him? He's in the top five. Williamson's probably won already, isn't he? Am I wrong? In terms of tests, I would go Williamson one, Crow two, and you can argue the toss over your Burt Sutcliffe, Glenn Turner, Ross Taylor for yeah. that third position. I think the other two were probably better than him, but he had longer careers. Obviously, Sutcliffe got hit yeah. in the head and that changed his trajectory. And 
Glenn Turner didn't want to play because of the way that the board was run. And that's one of the other things with Ross Taylor. He probably gets the third spot over those two because he played in the professional age and he's played yeah. so long, hasn't he? Like, I mean, New Zealand cricket didn't have players who could play that long before unless they played county cricket and subsidised it. No, and there was a chance for Ross years back. I'm going to get back to the other question soon too because I think a one-day cricket, for me, he's, he's number one. <laughs> that was the next one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a chance for Ross. For a while there, he was a really good T20 player and mm. he probably could have marketed himself a lot better to IPL teams by concentrating on that format or even taking that format quite seriously for a while. But he never, it never seemed to float his boat like the other formats did. And yeah, and then one day cricket, he was a monster. And he's not only my New Zealand number one one day international batsman of all time, but I would make a strong case for him to be in a global all time 11 one day player. Perhaps not number four. You probably have to give that to Amy de Villiers. But <laughs> some of his one-day stuff is overlooked because it came in bilateral series. And I know the least sexy thing about cricket at the moment is a ODI bilateral series. But, I mean, you ask any English bowler that's bowled to Ross Taylor in a one-dayer, he's a monster. He's got a 180 on one league at Dunedin that is one of the greatest cricket knocks I've ever seen. But it probably doesn't get talked about because it was in Dunedin. It was a bilateral one-day international. I'm going to allow you to put him in the all-time 11. I don't know if he's in the all-time 11, but I think modern-day one-day players, I think he's phenomenal. I think I still would have McCullum over him only because I think McCullum actually helped change the way one-day cricket was played. But I don't yeah. think New Zealand would have been successful if they'd not had Taylor as well. Like Taylor was the one that was making so many consistent runs. And he was also a threat at the other end of the innings because of his power and his leg side game. So I'm 100% with you on ODI cricket. What do you think his overall legacy to New Zealand cricket will be? Because I wrote in my piece that he sort of comes along. I'm pretty sure his first first class year starts during the strike. Yep. Yeah, you're probably right there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he signed and then the strike mm. happened or signed after the strike or however that was, which means he's pretty much the first New Zealand cricketer. And if you look at him, he has a lot of the traits of sort of the older New Zealand cricketers of getting down to it, having his own method, yeah. you know, and being a really well-respected person within the game. Like, you know, people really love Ross Taylor within cricket. But also, he had the ability to make himself into a professional in the way that the only guys before him who did had to go and play county cricket. So I almost see the legacy of him being the first New Zealand professional cricketer in that way. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, legacy. And... I was commissioned to write a piece for a, a quarterly cricket magazine, The Night Watchman. And the premise of the piece, the editor said to me, look, it's most likely Ross Taylor's last tour to England. It, it turned out to be correct. He's kind of the invisible run machine. And now I'd never seen him as that, right, because he's been such a huge part of my professional life, mm. Ross Taylor. I had no concept that perhaps overseas people didn't recognise him as being the run machine that he is at home. And in some ways, I think that's kind of neat that his legacy is. This one of this, just this understated guy that played 15 years for New Zealand. He had little patches where he looked terrible, as we've mentioned, but he always found a way. And I know perhaps it's not the most glamorous legacy to have, but, you know, being that guy that always found a way is not bad. You need one in your team, right? 
Yeah, definitely. And just last thing, when Bangladesh did the Guard of Honor, how did you feel having covered him that long, you know, have a relationship with him as a writer? You know, what did you feel at that point? Yeah, I thought that was really nice. I know McCallum got a Guard of Honor, and I hate coming back to that whole, you know, McCallum-Taylor thing, but they are two giants along Mm. with Williamson. They're the giants of the modern New Zealand game. McCallum got a Guard of Honor against Australia, and I was just sitting there thinking, please, Bangladesh, please make a Guard of Honor (laughs) for us. And I was so happy when they did it. But to me, and I know the best thing about that last test was not the fact he took a wicket, for his last ball in test cricket because in many ways it's actually it's the most ill-fitting way for <laughs> Rich Taylor to go out. For me, the nicest thing was the fact that even when that ball was in the air, his teammates were just charging him. They couldn't have been happier for him. And that warmed my heart there because they loved him. And I think New Zealand grew to love Russ Taylor. You know, the kid from Masterton had made it and he was mobbed by his teammates at that moment with his family on the field at the end of the game, which was nice. There's um, some great footage, or it might have been described to me actually as the kids went out there and recreated that last wicket <laughs> and the over of Hagley, and that, that was neat. And like I say, I hope his legacy continues, and I hope he's active in, in trying to engage that Pacific community more on cricket. But he found a way, Russ Taylor. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Sports Social Podcast Network.